I will be reading Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, destructive, wonderful word of His Son. Father, oh, may, may we see the big picture that you have painted through the hand of your servant, the writer to these Jewish Christians we call the book of Hebrews. Oh, may we see our place individually as a local church and as the church universal in this world today to the glory of your name. Amen. After I became a Christian, I, I know this is, I am a weird guy like this, so I, six to seven years in, I came to a crisis in, in, in my Christianity, in my life. And it, it was this. I had one big, massive question that I was confused about. It was this. What is church? And I don't mean, okay, yes, of course, it's the body of Christ. It's of all those who are in Christ. That's not what I meant. I meant, why do we Christians gather Together. In other words, what are we doing at its core as local churches? And it was ultimately passages like we have been in, Hebrews 7 and now chapter 8, and other passages that brought much relief and clarity in resolving that question to me. Now, so we'll get there at the end. Of this. For weeks we've been in chapter 7, and we have seen through the entirety of that chapter is that Jesus and his high priesthood is the reality to which all the pictures and shadows in the scripture that came before him in the Old Testament. He fulfills what they were pointing to. All the physical, temporal, sacrifices, days, weeks, new moons, Sabbaths, the tabernacle, and then the temple, the dietary laws, circumcision, the priestly garments and vestments, all laid out, Jesus comes as the reality to which they pointed. And what this means is that the entire worship life of the Old Testament has been radically refocused onto Jesus himself. And it has become, therefore, in other words, with His coming, worship has become this intensified spiritual 
thing happening in the hearts of individuals and together corporately. In other words, I mean it in a sense of spiritual at its core as opposed to an external. In other words, the proper place or the proper time or day or festival or clothing and priestly attire or proper sacrifices. With the coming of Christ, now the spiritual is radically central to all of life of God's people. Not just here today. Church functions. Remember how Paul put it in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's all the time, everywhere, every day. So, first, let's briefly look at the writer's summary of chapter 7, which is chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. Beginning in verse 1, he says, And now the point of everything he's been saying in chapter 7, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This is the main point of what he's been saying. In other words, in contrast to the earthly Levitical priesthood which operated externally here on earth, Christ is serving as high priest even this very moment because he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek which we have seen means he who gave himself as the sacrifice once for all was resurrected bodily in his true humanity and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Then in verse 2 he goes on. He's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, to the word for in Greek, tabernacle, in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. So this high priest, he's not ministering in an earthly tabernacle or temple, but in the true, the non-physical tabernacle, which God built. This is the real thing in heaven. Okay. This is the real thing in God, who is all and in all and through all. Jesus, in other words, a fellow human being who happened to be the creator of the universe, Jesus deals directly with the Father. He's not a shadow. His priesthood is not a pointer like the curtain in the physical temple or tabernacle separating the holiest place from the holy place or the Ark of the Covenant, the physical ark with the tablets of stone in it or the laver or the candlestick or the table of showbread. All of those things and their sacrifices and pigeons and lambs and priestly garments and robes were all shadows. But he's saying, Jesus has come. He's the reality that casts the shadow. And now the shadow has walked up to you personally and is no longer a shadow but the reality. And the reality is that Christ, our high priest, in the Godhead, 
for us on our behalf forever. And this is what he says in verses 3 to 5. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, the law and the priest, and shadow of the heavenly things. For, you see, when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, that quote is from Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. And remember, if you, you, you read your Bible, God gave... It, exactly how high, exactly how wide, exactly how long the, you're to make the Ark of the Covenant, and on and on and on, and the lengths of the curtains of the big tent of the tabernacle. And so he quotes, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The writer is saying that the furniture in the tabernacle, in the temple, all the priestly functions and actions of the worship within the tabernacle, the worship of Yahweh. He's saying they were all copies. They were pointers. They were shadows of a heavenly reality. He's saying when God gave instruction on exactly how to build the tent, and all of its furniture and the priestly robes, he didn't just pull it out of his ear. He patterned it after the glorious reality he wanted to picture in heaven, in himself, in other words, in his holy, good, merciful presence forever. So the point of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, has not come to fit into that old earthly Levitical priesthood. But He's come to fulfill it and thus put it to an end. And ultimately, to what? To draw and orient all of our attention not on those externals but on Christ raised ascended the right hand of the throne of God for us now and forever so what does that mean for us then Right now, in this world today, in 2022, in, say, the biblical terms, what does that mean for us in the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant? At its core, it means this. We are to focus on the essence of what worship is, not on its Form. The New Testament, when you think about it, just let your mind go through all the epistles and let it go through the Gospels. It's basically silent about outward forms and styles and protocol for the gathering in corporate worship. We, we do know there's, there's a couple things that are just assumed that when you gather, you do from the New Testament. Read the Bible publicly. Teach the Bible. 
celebrate Holy Communion. Sing. Sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Other than that, the New Testament radically intensifies worship at its core as an inner experience of the heart in all of life, in everyday life. In the New Testament, the gathering of the church is actually never called. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I hope it happens all the time on a Sunday morning. But it is never referred to as worship. Like that's the time now that you worship when you meet together. And that's where worship is. In the Old Testament, the place where you would go, the form, how you would do it, the priestly garments, it's all spelled out. This is what you are to do. In the New Testament, the shadow and the forms are replaced by the reality. And the result is that the New Testament, in, as opposed to the Old Testament, is basically silent about the outward forms. It seems to really be, you could take the heart of worship and the gospel, which is a word thing that comes into the human mind and the human heart. And people are born and raised in differing cultures. And therefore the forms will come from their worship different from another culture. They're not bound like this is how you bring your lamb or pigeon. And the priest does X, Y, or Z. Everyone throughout the world worships. Everyone does. They worship something from the most, what we call, secular person. We see that in our day and age in Western civilization. I mean, communism, leftism in America is religious. It, it, it moves what they are. Worship is something every human being is drawn to. It just depends on what the object of the worship is. And that worship, whatever they're worshiping, produces a structure or form. It drives their actions outwardly in life. If their God is alcohol, and they're an alcoholic, that's what they worship. Or a drug addict. Or money. Or prestige. Or power. Or popularity. It drives them. Or could be God. And so what makes it worship is that that something becomes to them such a treasure that they need it. They need it more than anything. That's what will fill my emptiness. I need more methamphetamine. Gotta have more money and more toys. And then you watch their life. And there's this outward religious function. Whether that outward religious function is, I will break into a neighbor's house to steal whatever I can in order to get money to buy more drugs. Or whether that outward function is, I will absorb the treasure of the Bible. I will sing. I'll pray. 
I will seek my soul intoxication in the presence of God the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Both are worship. Here's the key in that illustration. Those outward forms don't create the worship. The worship creates the outward forms, the actions, the life, the breaking into the home, or the reading the Bible. Praying, singing, it's flipped. It's flipped. In the new covenant, he will go on to argue this. You don't need, if someone's in a new covenant with you, you don't need to tell them, know the Lord. This is the difference between the new and old. Because every one of them knows the Lord if they're in the new covenant. And from that comes various forms because the worship produces it as opposed to all kinds of unregenerate human beings doing the forms in religion. I was raised that way. So I want you to turn for a moment to see this in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. Because we can see this radical shift, change, with the coming of the high priest in Jesus' own words to the woman at the well. Beginning in verse 21, he says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Samaria, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, the temple there, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Woman, you worship what you do not know. You got the place and all of it wrong. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Internal spiritual reality replaces, according to Jesus, geography. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but it's replaced by in spirit and truth. We see the same truth again when Jesus said to his fellow outward worshiping. Jewish brothers in Matthew 15, verses 8 to 9. This people honors me with their lips. Outward form. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So you can have an outward form of worship and not be actually worshiping God. Worship, therefore, in other words, that does not come from the heart is vain and it's empty. It's, according to Jesus, it's inauthentic. And then... To the woman at the well, Jesus made this stunning claim that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Verse 25, 
The woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He's saying the kingdom, the rule, the reign of God has dawned. And there's going to be a radical break in the way people worship. Why the huge change? The answer is because Jesus came to take the place of the shadows. For instance, he came to take the place of the temple in Jerusalem. He said, something greater than the temple is here. In other words, the place geographically where people would worship and where that would happen, where people would meet with God under the old covenant, it's changed. The place will not be in the physical temple in Jerusalem. It will be in the person. Jesus. In John 2.19, we heard it a couple weeks ago. Jesus was clear. Destroy this temple. Himself. His body. In three days I will raise it up. He's clearly saying that he'll be killed and then he'll be raised. He would be the new temple. The new meeting place with God. Because the reality to which the temple pointed is here. So when Jesus said, the hour is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He meant that a whole new approach to God in worship had come with the coming of the Messiah himself. And the external, the geographical, is replaced by the internal, the spiritual reality of worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. What matters is not where, but whether a person worships God in spirit and in truth. Let's just look at those two words for a moment. To worship Him in truth, in its context. It means at least this, to know the truth that there's a change from the outward form of worship to the truth that worship of God now only happens through Jesus Christ. This is what the author has been arguing all along. There is only one sacrifice, once and for all given. There's only one high priest forever, our mediator between God and us. And it is the man, Jesus Christ. He couldn't be clearer in that most famous verse in John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Worship in the truth and in spirit. Now, we just read the woman at the well in chapter 4, but right before that comes John chapter 3. And in that larger context, Jesus made it clear. He connected God's spirit with our human 
Spirit in a decisive way when he said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the Holy Spirit is your spirit. It's spirit. So in other words, until the Holy Spirit makes our human, the center of our being, of who we are as a, as a living spirit, until He makes us alive by the Holy Spirit, before that, we exist, we are a spirit, but we're, we're dead, dead to inclination or responsiveness to the true God with a heart of faith or heart of worship. So in the Gospel of John in chapter 3 and 4, it can only mean that true worship comes from what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing in the heart of sinners. And at the core, what He has done and is doing is He makes us alive and sensitive. This is what regeneration has produced and the filling of the Spirit produces to the truth of the Gospel. The Spirit is essential. The Holy Spirit with our spirit in all of genuine worship. I mean, without Him, worship is dead. It's only form. It's only singing. It's only church attendance. And in vain do they worship me. Because their heart is far from me in spirit. What makes for true worship is not only that the worshiping mind grasps the truth of who Jesus is, the gospel, but it's also that the worshiping spirit within us experiences an awakening. It experiences something that causes our guts down here to be moved by what our mind perceives in the truth of the gospel. Which means a person at any given moment who has no affections for God that have been moved by the truth of Jesus, by the truth of the scripture, that person singing, lifting hands, taking communion, doing whatever they're doing, they are not worshiping in spirit and in truth. And a person who has all kinds of emotional feelings that are built on false views of who God is are not worshiping in spirit and in truth. So Jesus' coming replaces the shadows and therefore worship is being in the new covenant Deinstitutionalized, decentralized in some location. And at its core, no matter where you are, de externalized. <coughs> the whole direction is being moved away from ceremony, seasons, festivals, new moons. Sabbaths, place, dress, forms. But instead, worship applies to all of life, to Jesus' people. I'm really confident at the core, that's what Paul means, how he sees worship when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or whether you drink, or whatever you do on any day of the week, do it all to the glory of God. 
Let's, let's look at one more passage. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus gets us to the very heart of this internal essence of what worship is. He says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or mammon, the things that money buys. So, serving, <clears throat> loving God, which at its core is worship, is compared here by Jesus to serving and loving money. So we're supposed to reflect on that. Well, how do you serve money? How do you love money? What does that mean to be a servant of money? Does it, does it mean, oh, master money, what may I do for you today? Can I take your clothes to the laundromat? You want me to sweep your floor? What do you need from me, money? Obviously, th that it cannot be what Jesus means. That makes no sense. You don't serve money by helping money out. You look to money. That's what you do. You look to money to meet your needs. You look to money as the answer for what you want and need. And so what do you do? How do you serve it? It affects you. You, you organize your life. You position yourself in such a way that money becomes more and more of a benefit to you. You treasure money. Now, if it's worship, like he's saying, you treasure money so much that that above all things is what guides your life. So your desires and your actions are shaped by money. Or drugs, or alcohol, or prestige, or God. That's his point. Therefore, to worship God, to serve God, does not mean to help God. Doesn't mean to meet God's needs, you're his servant. But it means to treasure him. To treasure him so much that we shape our lives to get the greatest benefit of what he can do for us, what he has promised and wants to do for all who want him to be and do that for him. So you devote your life, of course. Where else shall we go? Jesus, you and you only have the words of life. So New Testament worship, it's not bound to the temple in Jerusalem anymore as he's telling his readers because the temple is still standing it's prior to 70 AD when he's writing these Jewish Christians no it's not bound to any place to any time to any form it's not bound to Sunday morning worship services as we call them but it doesn't leave corporate worship out of the question here. In other words, corporate worship or the singing in and of itself or the preaching in and of itself, none of it is necessarily worship. The point is to get to the core of worship Him in spirit and in truth. And whatever's going to help you to position yourself to be doing that individually and corporately, then it produces those outward things. 
Which means, is the way I began this sermon, what the world is church? I mean, when you went through, we all go through different experiences in our Christianity. Mine just got to the place, I don't, what are, what are we doing? What is it all about? At the core, it is, it is, in one sense, simply this. We gather in order to go hard after God as desperate people. We gather. Look, the drug addict yearns for another fix. The Christian, the pursuit God means to yearn for another fix. Help my sin and my blindness break through with the word being read, taught, and the songs helping my heart through the words. Let me get my fix. Don't be drunk with wine, Paul says, but be being filled with the influence of the Spirit. So that means that on Sunday mornings, we, what we do, we do in order to either give place for expression of that in our hearts, and depending on where we're at the moment, and they're both worship, to help awaken within us that yearning in our hearts. The preaching, like right now of the Word, the prayers, the public reading of Scripture, singing, Holy Communion, they're all there to serve the glory of God in our hearts, yearning for Him. An experience, an expansion of our Joy and gratefulness and thankfulness for the gospel in his presence with us. So that means the main thing that we Christians bring to corporate gatherings on a Sunday morning is ourselves. It's what we bring. And what we've seen it implies how we're supposed to approach Sunday morning. And so first and foremost, the basic attitude in going to church of a worship service, as we call it, is not to come with hands filled with gifts to give to God. It is to come with hands that know how empty they are and are looking for God to give and to give more to me. Because we know that is His joy and that's the truth. Because if we think, I've got gifts to give to God. Oh, I know why I sing. Because it makes God happy and He'd be less happy in the sense of a baby would be less happy if we don't sing a lullaby. And somehow He needs us to do that for Him. Then you're a legalist. Then you are sinning at that moment when you think that's what you're doing. Our singing, our saying praise you, is God's gift to us. Because his gift to us is and always is at its core himself. And he purchased all of that for us in his son. What I just said, let me just back it up with scripture. You all know it. Psalm 42, verses 1 to 2. That's the essence of worship. Whether it's singing, whether it's sleeping, whether it's working, whether it, whatever you do, here's the essence of what Jesus has now brought in the new covenant. As a deer pants for the 
flowing streams of water because it's thirsty. He says, so my soul pants for you, oh God. Who's glorified in that? The deer or the water stream? Day is coming. It won't be about the outward form. It won't be in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. It is not about that. But wherever you're at, my people will worship me in spirit and truth. And the truth is that he is the water stream of life. And the reality is that he has mercifully and graciously put away our sin and provided God the Holy Spirit to dwell in us so that our hearts would meet what our minds see in the truth. And we will experience again and again and again and again and again and again and again thirst. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. God is honored. He is exalted when a person or when a group of people know we'll die of thirst unless we have God. That's the attitude that keeps God at the center of worship. When we approach through prayer, Bible reading, preaching, communion, to get God, then we're not confused about why we gather together as Christians. On whatever day, including Sunday, we won't see the songs in the reading the prayers, and the bread, and the cup, and sermons as mere traditions. But we'll see them for what they are. Means. Means of getting to God. Of being filled with His Spirit. The pursuit of of worshiping God in spirit and truth. That's what protects worship as an end in itself. That means we should never approach worship in whatever forms that takes. Never to approach Sunday morning corporate worship service as a means to something else. You cannot say, Oh God, I so love you and I worship you so that I could get this other thing. At that point, the other thing became what we really worship. It's something other than worship when that happens. And that dishonors God. It doesn't worship Him. So worship for churches on Sunday morning is not to be done in order to attract crowds. It's another thing. It's not to be done in order to heal bodies or to heal emotions or to recruit church workers or to help marriages. Here's why we're here. It's not what worship is. Genuine affections for God are an end in themselves. Jesus, our reality has come. And we now want to see Him, according to Jesus in John 4. Truth is really important. So we want to see Him. As we want to see the truth, 
in the gospel with their minds. It can't bypass it. It goes through it. But you don't have worship yet. We want our hearts to be affected, to love, to acquiesce, to repent, to adore, to sense joy, to sense appropriate grief. Anything that the truth is producing, we want that to happen in our spirit. So, let's keep our satisfaction, our joy, our pursuit of God at the center of our lives. Whatever we're doing, eat and drink, or working, playing, and on Sunday morning, and to the degree that we do, it'll be authentic worship that our Savior came to purchase for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you're good. Please never let us broken, sinful people tire of this reality even now that we find ourselves authentically praying, talking to you, knowing that you're present by the Holy Spirit, knowing that that's true for us sinners because Lord Jesus, you have paid that great price. We thank you for your first coming. And we thank you for the promise of that second coming. When your full redemption will wrap everything up. Oh, you are good. In our closing time, be adored. Be adored genuinely. We're desperate people. We're desperate for the work of your spirit upon our dullness to the glory of your name. Amen. Let us.